church. Today's scripture reading comes from Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through the first two sentences of verse 18. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find the passage on page 980, 980. And as you turn there, I just want to remind everybody that when Jesus was praying his high priestly prayer in John 17, he prayed that the Father would sanctify his disciples by his word. And he said, your word is truth. So in a world that is confused, increasingly relativistic, we need all the more now to anchor ourselves in the immovable and unchanging truth of God's word. Philippians 1, starting in verse 12. Would you please rise in honor of this reading of God's holy and inerrant word? I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right, let me pray for us once more. Gracious Father, we thank you for this word that has just been read. We thank you for your truth, and we do pray according to your word that you sanctify us by your truth. So we ask for the Holy Spirit, the spirit of sanctification to come and to work mightily in our hearts, uh, to shape our thinking and our feeling in accordance to your truth, and then lead us as we leave this place to behave in ways that align with that truth, in the ways that we speak to each other and treat each other, and the ways that we engage this world. May it all be according to the truth of Scripture. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, last week, friends, we began a summer series going through the, uh, the book of Philippians. We covered last week uh, the introduction of the letter. That was in chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Minister Stanley he was, was here to walk us through that section. And today we're going to be looking, as we just read, at verses 12 to 18. Now, in our text, it's helpful because here... The Apostle Paul gives us a better sense of his background context. And what is apparent to us immediately is that Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians 
sitting in jail. He's imprisoned. He's in chains for the cause of Christ, for preaching the gospel. Now, we know that his opponents thought these chains would hinder the gospel's advance, but in reality, those chains merely serve to unleash the true power of gospel preaching. Paul's opponents discovered what countless other persecutors of the church would eventually come to learn. That persecution that's intended to stamp out Christianity only results in scattering the embers and fanning the the church into flame and, and actually sparking a gospel revival. That's been a consistent pattern throughout church history. Persecution only sparks revival. As most of you know, I've been blessed by the church to uh, take a sabbatical this month. And my family and I, uh, just tomorrow in the afternoon, we're going to be leaving for the UK. And we're going to be over there for a month. And I'm looking forward, of course, to resting and to recharging. But what I'm really excited about as well is all the church history that we get to explore in England, Scotland, and in Ireland. I can't wait, of course, to visit Oxford University and to be able to stand on the very site where Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer were martyred for their part in the English Reformation. They were victims of the infamous Bloody Mary. Mary, if you're not aware, was the oldest daughter of Henry VIII. Uh, It was under Henry VIII's reign when the Church of England broke away from Rome and the English Reformation began. Now, Mary wasn't a direct heir to the throne because after his many wives, Henry VIII finally had himself a son, Edward VI. But he was only nine when he became king, and he was ill, and it was terminally ill, and he died at a young age. He died just six years later. And all of his Protestant counselors were were trying to maintain the Reformation, but they were unable to prevent Mary, as the eldest, from securing, ascending to and securing the throne. Now, the reason why those Protestants were so opposed to Mary's reign is because she was raised by her mother to be a devout Catholic, which is why she immediately set out to undo the Reformation in England and to march England right back to Rome and right under its papal authority. She reinstated the Catholic Mass. She returned worship services to being conducted in Latin only. She outlawed the English Bible and she banned the books of the Reformers. And worst of all, she persecuted Protestants by giving them two options. You either renounce your Reformation principles or you roast at the stake. Those are your options. And in her, near, in her five-year reign, nearly 300 Protestants were executed, were burned at the stake. She truly earned her nickname, Bloody Mary. On October 16, 1555, at Oxford University, two men were tied back-to-back on one stake. Thomas Ridley and Hugh Latimer were set to be burned for their refusal to deny the gospel. The witnesses record Latimer's last words to Ridley as this, these famous last words. Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light such a candle in England as I trust shall never be put out. 
Now those words were definitely prophetic. Because after Mary's brief but bloody reign, her sister Elizabeth, known as Elizabeth I, she ascended the throne and she unified England under one crown and one church. And a clergyman named John Fox cemented the legacy of Ridley and Latimer in his famous book, Fox's Book of Martyrs. So in the end, killing them did not hinder the advance of the gospel. The uh, exact opposite actually occurred because their story passed down in Fox's book inspired others to take a stand for the gospel, even in the face of death. And so that, my friends, has been the consistent pattern. Persecution only fans the flame of gospel ministry. And this pattern began all the way back since the earliest days of the church. I mean, just think of Acts chapter 8. After Stephen became the first Christian martyr and how this young Pharisee named Saul was going around ravaging the church. And so in Acts 8 verse 1, it reads this. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. Now, you would think that would deal a devastating blow to such a young church. But you read on in a few verses later in verse 4. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So the very act of scattering the church by persecution led to the spreading of the gospel by preaching. That's how the pattern works. So enemies of the gospel have have always underestimated its power, thinking that Christianity can be stamped out with enough pressure. Totalitarian regimes tend to apply direct pressure by actually persecuting Christians, while liberal democracies, on the other hand, normally resort to indirect pressure by marginalizing believers, pushing them out to the outskirts of acceptable society. But even Christians, even Christians can underestimate the power of the gospel, worrying all the time, being so anxious about all the disagreements arising up within the church. We see so much division over non-primary issues. We see a growing sense of competitiveness and tribalism among us. And we worry. And we, we don't know if, if the church can be able to survive that. Now, you know, I'm not suggesting that these aren't problems that the church needs to address, whether it's persecution from without or partisanship from within. Yes, those are issues that we should never dim- diminish or dismiss or minimize. But friends, at the same time, we must not underestimate God and the power of his gospel. What we're going to see in this morning's text is how the opposition intended to hinder the advance of the gospel merely serves to unleash its amazing power. We're going to consider three aspects of gospel preaching. If you want to follow along, look in your bulletin. You see an outline listing these three aspects of gospel preaching. First, the unstoppable advance of gospel preaching. Second, the underlying motives of gospel preaching. And third, the unifying principle of gospel preaching. Now let's start though, before we go into those points, let's start by giving you some background information. I think that's going to help you to to better understand this text. So as we mentioned before, Paul is writing this letter while in prison. Now there are a few theories as to where exactly he's imprisoned. The traditional view though, 
the, the, the majority view would be that he is in Rome. That this imprisonment is the imprisonment that's actually recorded for us at the end of Acts 28. Now we know from the book of Acts that his imprisonment was the result of all the machinations of those who were deeply opposed to his ministry to the Gentiles. They trumped up these false accusations that he was stirring up riots among the Jews throughout the Roman Empire and all the cities that he was visiting. And that when he came back to Jerusalem, he was desecrating the temple. That's what he was accused of. And so for two years, he remained in custody and he faced numerous trials, whether in Jerusalem or later on in Caesarea. Now, eventually, in his two-year stay in Caesarea, he appealed to Caesar to be, have a trial before Caesar himself, and that was his right as a Roman citizen, and so he was sent on to Rome. So Acts concludes with Paul in Rome under imperial guard, under the guard of the Praetorians, the Praetorian guard, which would make sense if he was viewed as this dangerous insurrectionist who was preaching about another king, a king whose authority superseded even Caesar's. And so he was, he was potentially very dangerous, and that's why they had the royal guard watching him. Now, at the same time, we also know that the Philippian church had a strong track record of supporting Paul in all his missionary activities, especially to help him out during his persecution. So we read later on in chapter 4, verses 15 to 16, that after Paul had moved on from, from Philippi on to Thessalonica and then to Berea, and he faced their false, uh, very fierce opposition from false teachers, uh, the, the church of Philippi, we're told, it was the only church to support him during that time. And then in chapter 4, verse 10, we learn that they looked for a chance to support him earlier in his arrest, uh, in all those trials in Jerusalem and Caesarea, but they had no opportunity at that time. But in verse 10, Paul says, but now I'm so thankful that now that I've been transferred to Rome, you Philippians finally have an opportunity to show that support you wanted to show, and I have received your gift. And he's talking about the gift that they had sent through one of their church members named Epaphroditus, who's going to be mentioned later in the letter. So Paul is writing the letter of Philippians kind of like a, a, a thank you letter for receiving support. This is you know, like, a, like a missionary sending you back a thank you letter. That's kind of what is happening here in this book. But more importantly, he's thanking them, not just for the gift, but for standing with them in defense of the gospel. And he is here to reassure them that what man meant for evil, God meant for good. Now, Paul does that by first reminding the Philippians of the unstoppable advance of the gospel. That's the first aspect of gospel preaching. Try as you may to bind the gospel with chains, that merely serves to unleash its power to save. Try to stamp it out, and you just spread the fire even further and farther. That's what Paul is saying in verse 12. Let me read verse 12 again. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, the Greek word for advance, prokope, sounds a whole lot like the Greek word for obstacle, proskope. And so the readers of his letter probably would have expected Paul to say that his imprisonment was a proskope 
It was an obstacle and a hindrance to the gospel. But instead, he surprises them by saying that his imprisonment is a prokope. It's an advance of the gospel. Now notice, he doesn't say the gospel continued to advance in spite of adversity, but rather that the adversity itself, the imprisonment itself, resulted in the advancement of the gospel. In other words, what he's saying is that it's not just that God is strong enough to frustrate the evil plans of bad actors and to turn a bad situation into something good. I mean, that would be praiseworthy in itself. But do you see that Paul is going even further? And he's saying that God is so powerful that even the evil plans of bad actors can flow seamlessly into the sovereign stream of his eternal purposes. How much more assuring is it to know that God doesn't just work good out of bad situations, but rather that that bad situation is somehow a part of God's overall good plans and that what bad people meant for evil, God meant for good. I think it's deeply reassuring to know that God is in control of all the chaos in my life and that evil never surprises God. It never catches him off guard. It never frustrates his plans. Now, of course, that begs the question, It begs the question of what good came out of Paul's imprisonment? How exactly did it serve to advance the gospel? Well, Paul mentions two things. The the evangelization of pagans and the edification of believers. Those are two good things. Let's consider the evangelization of pagans. Listen to verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, the imperial guard is referring to Caesar's personal bodyguards. I mean, just think of those red stormtroopers in in Star Wars, right? These are the elite. These guys, they know what they're doing. You don't mess with the red stormtroopers. So now, historians tell us that the whole imperial guard could have been as large as 9,000 men. And they were very influential in Roman history. They had a hand in deposing and in promoting Caesars throughout Roman history. The Imperial Guard, they were actually the ones who assassinated um, Caligula, and they put Claudius on the throne. And Claudius was succeeded by Nero. And you're probably familiar with Nero. He was the Caesar at the time of Paul's imprisonment. And Nero himself was significantly influenced by the Praetorian Guard. But notice how these powerful kingmakers did not intimidate Paul. Instead, instead of the Imperial Guard influencing Paul, notice how he's the one making a great impression on them. The whole guard, we're told, became familiar with this Roman Jew from Palestine who was arrested because of his allegiance to a Jewish rabbi who was known to be a miracle worker. But more so, this rabbi was crucified by fellow Roman soldiers. And yet somehow his followers are going around claiming that he rose from the dead and that he is this king who is coming to establish his kingdom on earth. And just as Paul took the opportunity to share the gospel with his Philippian jailer, 
It looks like he took every opportunity to share with any and every imperial guard who was assigned to watch him. And by God's grace, he enjoyed the freedom and fruitfulness of gospel preaching even while he was in chains. When he mentions in verse 13 that his story was also known to all the rest, he's probably referring there to the uh, other people who served within Caesar's palace. They must have gotten wind of his testimony, and they must have as well heard of his gospel preaching. And some of them must have uh, been converted to the faith because at the end of his letter, in chapter 4, verse 22, at the very end, he sends greetings from other believers who are in, quote, Caesar's household. So the gospel must have effectively penetrated Caesar's own palace. Now, of course, that shouldn't surprise us considering how it says at the end of the book of Acts in chapter 28, it ends by saying, Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance, without proscope, but rather the gospel was procope. It was advancing throughout Rome, and especially in Caesar's household. Wow. Now, his imprisonment clearly served to evangelize pagans. As we said, it also served to edify believers. Look at verse 14. Verse 14, Paul says, the believers in the church in Rome, they were strengthened in their faith, and they were emboldened in their own evangelism. He says, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And so rather than being intimidated by Paul's imprisonment, the believers in Rome were actually emboldened to speak up even more. Paul says they were already bold, but now they are much more bold to speak the word without fear. They were inspired, of course, by just looking at Paul, looking at his response to his own suffering. And they were just amazed at how Paul looked at his own chains with eyes of faith. He was able to see things from a different perspective. He didn't see an obstacle. He saw gospel opportunity. He he didn't see an imposing soldier in front of him. He saw a lost soul who needs Jesus. The believers who witnessed Paul and his suffering were inspired to go back home and to reinterpret their own suffering through those same eyes of faith. And so they grew confident in the Lord, trusting that the Lord would as well empower their gospel witness in the face of all of their opposition. They became, they became much more bold, much more willing to speak out for the gospel without fear of backlash, without fear of persecution. Apparently, friends, gospel courage is contagious. Gospel courage is contagious. Well, friends, the gospel that Paul preached, of course, we know is a radical and risky gospel. I mean, he just goes on in the next chapter to tell us that this gospel, this good news, this message that he's bringing demands that every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth bow before Jesus and every tongue confess that he is Lord. He is master. If you go around proclaiming that kind of gospel with such a universal scope, every knee, every tongue, well, then you can 
expect opposition. You can expect adversity. And the real question is, how are you going to interpret that adversity? How are you going to respond to that opposition? That, my friends, is the big question here. If you look like Paul through the eyes of faith, then it's not far-fetched to count it all joy when you face trials of many kind or to rejoice in the midst of your adversity. That's not crazy talk because through eyes of faith, you can see the unique gospel opportunities that your circumstances afford and you can set a courageous example for others knowing that gospel courage is contagious. And that, of course, is the hope. The whole hope is that the adversity that we are experiencing for Christ will advance the gospel by inspiring others through more preaching and more proclaiming of, of the good news. Now, of course, we need to dig deeper here, and we need to consider the underlying motives of gospel preaching. And so this leads to our second point what we'll see is that those believers who were emboldened to continue preaching the gospel in the face of opposition, they were driven by two different sets of motivations. Listen to verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. So some believers respond to Paul's imprisonment with love. And went about preaching Christ, as, it's, as we're told, out of goodwill, hoping to continue his ministry to the Gentiles while he was detained in prison. But others responded to his imprisonment with selfish ambition, and they went about preaching Christ, but they did so out of envy and rivalry, hoping to find a way to hurt Paul by gaining for themselves a greater following and, and building for themselves a bigger ministry than Paul. Those were two diametrically opposite motivations that prompted the exact same action, the preaching of the gospel. So if you look with me at verse 16, Paul first addresses those who preach Christ from a goodwill, with good intentions. He says the latter, those who preach Christ out of goodwill, do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. These brothers and sisters recognized Paul's divine calling, his divine commission, because that word for put here, it literally means to, to lie down or to recline, but figuratively, it can be used in the Greek, as it is used elsewhere in the New Testament, to convey the idea of being appointed or being destined to do something by God. So, for example, in Luke chapter 2, verse 34, Simeon blesses the baby Jesus and tells his mother, Behold, this child is appointed, literally put here, for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Or in another letter of Paul, 1 Thessalonians 3, 3, Paul exhorts his readers not to be, turred, to be deterred by all of the affliction he's receiving, for you yourselves know that we are destined literally put here for this. So those who are preaching the gospel with good motives recognize that Paul was put here for a purpose. He was destined. He was divinely appointed to be in prison for the cause of Christ. And so they're not ashamed 
They're not surprised by his chains. They understood very well that suffering accompanies the call of Christ and the mission of gospel preaching. Even before he writes verse 29, chapter 1, verse 29, they already knew, they already believed that, chapter 1, verse 29, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Philippians, it has been granted to you. You have been appointed for this. You have been destined for this. You have been put here for this to suffer for his sake. So those are the ones who preach Christ out of good intent because they understand God's purpose for suffering, for the advancement of the gospel. But those who, but who are those, on the other hand, who are preaching the same gospel, but they're doing so out of selfish motives. Listen to how Paul describes them in verse 17. He says, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Now, as we're trying to identify these individuals, it's important to emphasize that these people are not the same people as the opponents of the gospel that Paul is going to refer to later on three times in this letter. In chapter 1, verse 28, chapter 3, verse 2, and chapter 3, verse 18. There, you're going to see that he's going to be talking about these opponents. There, he's talking about false teachers who are preaching a false gospel. But the individuals here in our text, in verse 17, are still classified as brothers in Christ as he addressed them in verse 14. They are fellow believers in the church in Rome. They weren't false teachers. Paul considered their message to be sound. He says that they were preaching Christ. They were preaching the actual gospel. And that just makes his point. Yes, their motives for preaching contradicted the content of their preaching, but that did not hinder the effect of their gospel preaching. By God's grace, people were still coming to faith in the Lord Jesus. But of course, that just raises for us even more questions. I mean, if these guys are on the same team, preaching the same gospel, then why would they oppose Paul? And why would they think, they think that their preaching of Christ would hurt him? Isn't, wouldn't they know that's what he likes? That's what he wants? Well, it's likely because they saw Paul as a ministry rival. He said that in verse 15, that they are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry. And so they probably viewed his imprisonment as a prime opportunity for them to go out and to grow their following and to steal some sheep from Paul to add to their, to their following. That's how they hoped to hurt Paul, to afflict him while he was away in prison. Or some theorized that the rivalry wasn't about numbers per se, but it was more about a disagreement over methodology. These preachers may have disagreed with Paul's methods, deeming his methods to be too bold, too risky. They considered their methods to be more sensible as evidenced by the fact that it has kept them out of prison, unlike Paul. And so they would have been motivated all the more to preach Christ in their particular way in order to prove that their approach is right, Paul is wrong, don't do what he's doing, do what we're doing, follow us. His way leads to arrest. And that just leads to hindering the advancement of the gospel. 
If that's what they were thinking, if that's what they were saying to other people, that explains very well why Paul is so emphatic in this letter to say that the gospel is actually still advancing even while he's in prison. But, you know, in the end, even if we can only speculate as to what is their underlying motive for preaching Christ, we do know, as Paul tells us, it was motivated by selfish ambition. It was done out of ill will, out of envy and rivalry. And when it comes down to it, of course, one day these Christians are going to have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. They're going to have to give an account for their motives in their selfish rivalry against Paul. And even if, even if the resultant action was good, like preaching Christ and leading people to salvation, your motives still matter before an all-knowing, all-seeing God. Now, if these rival preachers were true believers, then the sin of their selfish ambition has been atoned for by the blood of Christ. They are forgiven. They are saved. And they will be led to repentance at some point by the Holy Spirit who dwells within them. But even still, it's important to stress that motives matter when it comes to your personal accountability before God. It's not just about what you do. It's why you do it. God cares about both. But now when it comes, though, to the advancement of the gospel, our text makes clear that God is powerful enough to use even our selfish motives to advance his sovereign purposes. The bad motives behind our good behavior does not limit God. It does not limit his ability to do good through us. Now, on one hand, that ought to encourage you. That ought to encourage, especially those of you who feel unworthy to serve God. You, you know, you, you've been asked to serve in different capacities, but you, you keep declining because, not because you, you're busy, I mean, you might be busy as well, but because deep down you don't feel like you deserve that. You don't feel like you're worthy to serve God. If you're always questioning your motives, if you're unsure, if your heart is pure enough to serve him, be comforted in knowing that God can use you, even if your motives are mixed and you're still trying to figure out, am I doing this with the purest of heart? You know what? The reality is there's always going to be some selfishness in our hearts as we are in this process of being purified and sanctified. And so this should be encouraging for those of you who, who feel hesitant to serve because you're waiting for your motives to be 100% pure. But at the same time, at the same time, this should also serve as a warning. We should be aware that motives matter when you eventually do have to give an account before the Lord. This text should serve as a warning for those of us who have grown far too familiar with serving God. For those of us who just keep serving in ministry, we just keep serving in church without really considering our motives. Why are we doing it? Without examining whether our motives are pure and coming from goodwill and, and done out of true love. Some of us probably need to pause and to reflect on the underlying motives of our gospel ministry. I think that's a needed application that we must not ignore. But of course, the main point the main point that Paul is making here in this passage 
is that the true preaching of the gospel is what matters most. If there is rivalry between fellow believers, if we're dealing like you find here in this text, if you're dealing with interpersonal conflict between Christians, our hope centers on the gospel. If our shared commitment to the gospel and the faithful gospel preaching remains intact, if that's the one thing in common between us, then that, Lord willing, is what can reconcile us back together again. This is our third point. The unifying principle of gospel preaching. Paul makes this point for us in verse 18, in the first section there of verse 18. Listen to it. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So if Paul is not bothered by imprisonment, by Roman chains, well, then he's certainly not bothered by the selfish ambition of rival preachers. Sure, they want to shrink his ministry, they want to grow theirs, but Paul is not bothered by that because he's, he's not playing that game. When he writes, what then? That phrase in Greek, it would be like us saying today, so what? So what? I, I don't care. Paul doesn't care about being a celebrity pastor. He doesn't care about the size of his following or, or making a name for himself. All he cares about is the name of Christ and about more people being saved in that name. That's what he cares about. So as, as long as the name of Christ is being faithfully procla proclaimed, whether in pretense or in truth, with bad motives or with good ones, that's going to lead Paul to rejoice. He is going to rejoice over the fact that the gospel is going out there and leading to people being reconciled with a holy God. So friends, let, let me just take a moment to speak directly into our present moment as a society, into the present day fracturing of our Christian communion. I'm talking about all the polarization and division that is occurring between Christians in our day, oftentimes within the same church, sometimes within the same family. There's so much out there with the potential to divide us, whether it's how to respond to the pandemic, how to approach social justice issues, how to navigate partisan politics. There's so much out there to polarize us. And you know, we can be on different sides of the aisle. Christians can have different convictions and, and different approaches on, on how to stop horrific mass shootings like what happened either in that supermarket in Buffalo or that Taiwanese church in LA or that elementary school in West Texas. All in the span of two weeks, all that has occurred. You know, we can have different views on whether it's right during a pandemic to require masks to be worn or for everyone to get a vaccine. You can, you can disagree on that. Or we could debate about the best solution to the problems of racial profiling and police brutality of how to respond to the sex abuse scandals in the church or of illegal immigration down to the southern border. I mean, these are problems we recognize how to solve them, what particular policies to put into place. There could be some disagreement there. 
And even if we feel like, like most of us in this church would, would pretty much be on the same page in, in, in recognizing these problems and resolving, seeking to resolve these problems, you can be sure that you know other Christians in the workplace or in the classroom or, of course, in other churches who would see things differently. And it's very easy to adopt a us versus them mentality. And to question the, the genuineness of some people's Christianity because they would actually support these policy proposals or, or, or they would vote for these candidates that you find morally repugnant. It's easy to see them as them and not a part of us. But the Apostle Paul would have none of that. If you think about it, he had every reason to adopt an us versus them mentality towards those who were reveling in his suffering and trying to take advantage of his imprisonment for selfish gain. But he refused to do that. He refused to play that game. He maintained the centrality of the gospel and of gospel preaching, and he was content to move on with no desire to tweet back at them or to, you know, quickly rant against them in a blog post or to even speak badly of them in a personal letter written to another church community who wouldn't have known their names if he had spoken of them. He didn't do that. He didn't go there. What Paul cared more about is that they were still gospel people conducting gospel preaching among lost people who needed Jesus. Now, sure, yes, they might be gospel people in need of some repentance and some further sanctification for their ill motives and why they're preaching, but they still were, like him, undeserving sinners saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by our good works or even by our good motives so that no one can boast. Let me be clear. I am not trying to minimize the importance of these sensitive subjects over which Christians often do disagree. I'm not saying that we should just ignore talking about these contentious issues and just, let's just focus on the work of evangelism. Let's just focus on gospel preaching. Let's not, let's not talk about these things. Let's not ever uh, uh, you know, have a debate about them. No, let's, let's, let's just preach the gospel. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that we should not minimize the fact that we believe the same gospel and we seek to preach the same gospel and we share the same hope for the lost to be saved by that very gospel. I'm saying that there is no us versus them in the body of Christ. There's only us and the Lord Jesus, who is our head, and the one spirit who unifies us all in the bond of peace, and the one father who is over all and through all and in all, that's it. And so, friends, just think about a church or a Christian organization or an individual that you know that you would disagree with over one of those significant issues I just mentioned earlier. Just, just picture them. Picture that church. Picture that, that organization. Picture that person that is a Christian that you know you would have very significant disagreements with. Can you say, in all honesty, that despite your disagreement, you still rejoice 
over their preaching of the gospel. That certainly was Paul's attitude towards fellow believers with whom he disagreed. It's hard to speak ill of someone or to think poorly of them when you're rejoicing over what God is doing through their church, through their gospel ministry. When you're thanking God for how he is using someone or or some group to save the lost, it's really hard to see them as an enemy or to treat them that way. That, my friends, is the unifying principle of gospel preaching. That's why we need to keep the gospel central. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this text that reminds us of how powerful your word is. How powerful your gospel is. That nothing, no machinations of man, no persecution, no chain can hold it down. But that your gospel advances and your gospel bears fruit even in the fires of persecution. Lord, we thank you for this gospel that also has the power to unite the church. We have disagreements. We have different points of view. We have different sets of consciences when it comes to some of these controversial solutions to problems that we recognize. And yet, Lord, it's easy for us to divide. It's easy for us to see other Christians and to be suspect of them and to see them as other and to count them as as them and not part of us. Lord, help us to be like Paul, to not play that game, to not be tribal, to to instead to see that the gospel unifies us and that you, your spirit, will lead us all into truth. And you will be the one that convicts. You will be the one that leads us from error into truth and right thinking and right action. So help us, Lord, to be faithful, to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.